Welcome to Built to Go, a van life program. I am your guest host, Rob O'Hara, coming to you from behind the College of Curiosity, probably in one of those temporary metal buildings they set up for overflow students. This time it's episode 188, and we're going to talk about making a living on YouTube simply by living in your van. We're also going to talk about the difference between volts and watts and amps. I take a look at Van True security camera for vehicles and I'll tell you about the time I visited the biggest ball of twine in Kansas. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to episode 188 of Built to Go. Our illustrious leader, Mr. Jeff Wagg, is floating somewhere in the ocean on his way to the Panama Canal. And so he asked me if I would be interested in covering for him on this episode. Well, does a van lifer poop in the woods? You bet we do. And so I jumped at the opportunity. My name is Rob O'Hara. I was born, raised, and still reside just outside of Oklahoma City. I'm a podcaster and a streamer. I have lots of different interests, one of which is van life. After watching what feels like thousands of YouTube videos and subscribing to several podcasts, including this one, I purchased a 2007 Ford E250 cargo van in the spring of 2022 and began turning it into a sweet, sweet sweet van life camper van. I began documenting this process slow as it has been online under the name Big Rob's Van. So if you would like to follow my build and van adventures, you can find me on YouTube or Instagram at Big Rob's Van, or all those links are available at BigRobsVan.com. If Jeff is a set of heavy-duty tires rolling underneath a van, I am but the spare donut designed to get us to the nearest service station. So with that, let's get started talking about this episode's topic, making a living from YouTube while living in your van. Now, here's a secret about van life that Jeff hasn't told you, but since I'm guest hosting today, I'll go ahead and let the cat out of the bag. The truth is, we're all millionaires. Yep, that's right. We're all dirty, stinking rich. I bet you didn't know that. People have a misnomer that the rich and famous live in seaside mansions or sprawling ranches. But no, many of us just live and vacation out of self-converted vans. But if you watch enough YouTube videos, you might start to actually believe that. And more than that, you might think that it is easy or even possible to make a living from YouTube while living inside of a van. And it is possible, but we may need to redefine what making a living actually means. So uh, when my daughter was young, she was in grade school, I asked her what she wanted to be when she grew up. And she told me she wanted to be a YouTube influencer, which I thought at the time was one of the funniest things she had ever said to me. In 2019, The Sun interviewed 1,000 kids and asked them what they wanted to be when they grew up. The number one answer was YouTuber. Number two was blogger or vlogger. And then number three was musician or singer. Sadly, astronaut did not make the list. Now, it's easy to understand why all these kids grow up and think you can make a living on YouTube. My son told me Mr. Beast, who one time he told me was one of his heroes, <laughs> made $14 million last year on YouTube alone. 
And YouTube has released a number and says that approximately 400,000 YouTubers make a living on YouTube. Now that sounds like a lot of people. Until you do the math, there are 2.5 billion people on YouTube right now. So if you divide that out, the percentage of YouTube users making a living wage through YouTube is 0.016%. It's not very good. But of course, as van life people, the dream is to be able to make money or be self-sufficient while we are out traveling around the country in our van. So these people that claim to be making a living through YouTube, how do they do that? Well, the first thing is they have to get their channel monetized. Uh, that is uh, a process where you have to meet certain criteria. You have to have at least 500 subscribers to your channel and you have to have more than 3000 watch hours of your content. So if you meet those two requirements, you can apply for YouTube's partner program. Program. Now, uh, that's not the only thing you have to do for the money to start rolling in on YouTube. People believe that you get paid when someone watches your video, and that's not actually how it works. You get paid when people watch the ads in your video. In fact, if you watch a lot of monetized channels, you may notice that the videos are rarely shorter than eight minutes long. That's because at eight minutes is the first cutoff where you can put ads in the middle <laughs> of your video. So as a content creator, you can get paid for people watching your ads. Now, what happens when people watch YouTube videos with an ad blocker? Well, you don't get paid for those. It literally keeps track of how many ads people watch, not just watching your videos. Also, you'll see a lot of YouTubers mention not using copyrighted music or using clips from movies, things like that. That's because YouTube will file a copyright claim against that video and any video that has a copyright claim against it, you also don't earn any money from uh, those videos. So there's a lot of rules uh, just to get started started on this program. Now, another thing to think about is it's not just about making content. You have to make content that people are interested in. And because you get paid by the ad, that's why you see a lot of these clickbait titles and a lot of these cliffhanger videos. When you see a headline that says, you won't believe what happened when I spent the night in this parking lot and you watch the entire video waiting to see what happened. And many times what happened was absolutely nothing. But because you sat through the beginning and the end, most likely you saw those videos and they probably made a little bit of money off that. But how much money did they make? Well, you can use Google and find this term and a rate. The term is called CPM. That stands for cost per thousand. M is obviously the Roman numeral for 1000. And uh, the first thing that Google returns is $18 uh, is a going CPM rate. In other words, if someone is monetized and you watch a thousand of their videos, they would earn $18. But that number is actually not current and it's not accurate. Um, a current, a more current number for that would be probably 12 is a good CPM, but something that a lot of people don't know is that the 
ad rates are different per category. So if you are doing financial related things, if you are doing videos about investments or cryptocurrency, things like that, you can get those higher rates. The absolute lowest ad rate category is uh, lifestyle and personal videos, which by the way, is what van life falls onto. And the going rate for those ads is about five to $7 per thousand videos. So and when these people are saying, hey, watch you know my channel, watch my videos, you can kind of do the math. For every thousand views, they're probably making between five and seven dollars. Now that is not a living wage. So what are the other ways people are making money off of these YouTube channels for uh, living in their van? Well, it turns out they have a lot of secondary sources of income. The first one that's most obvious are sponsorships. You may see someone stop their video in the middle and ride an e-bike for a while and talk about an e-bike or promote a specific protein uh, or energy drink or things like that. And those are sponsorships that they are getting paid to put those things in their video. They also get paid for referrals. So you'll see that a lot of uh, YouTubers have a referral code where if you buy something and use their code, you get a discount and they also make a little bit of money. Also, Another very common uh, affiliate program is Amazon's affiliate program. You can use Amazon links if you sign up for to be uh, uh, part of the Amazon affiliate program. And if someone buys an item through your link, they don't have to pay any more money and you get a very slight amount of money. And when I say slight, after five months, I finally had someone buy a Ryobi tool using one of my affiliate links and it says I made 20 cents. So <laughs> stand back, the money is rolling in. Um, you'll also see a lot of merchandise sales, people selling coffee mugs and t-shirts and stickers, things like that. That's a way that a lot of people make money. Uh, there are subscription services, I'm sure you've heard of Patreon. Uh, there are subscription services through YouTube. You may see Substack newsletters. That is a common thing. These are ways for YouTubers to make money. And then there are the one-time donation things, the buy me a coffee, maybe a PayPal, maybe a Venmo or a cash me link where someone doesn't have to set up a subscription service or sign up for an ongoing payment, but they can just send you money uh, you know, on a one-time basis. Now, I want to tell you three quick stories, and these are all van life videos uh, that I watch. First of all, I want to tell you about a woman that I watch. She is a middle-aged uh, woman who lives in her van. She currently creates videos on YouTube. She works part-time. She works a few months out of the year uh, in her hometown, and then she goes out for long trips. Uh, her content is very enjoyable. I enjoy watching it. But one of the things I've noticed over the past year is she has been reviewing a lot of these e-bikes. She reviewed one e-bike, and I guess the review went well because then there was a second and a third, and somehow she has become the go-to person, at least in the videos I watch, for reviewing e-bikes. And it's very interesting. And in one of her videos, she mentioned that all of those e-bikes are for sale at 50% off. 
<laughs> and she has sold them to all the people in her circle. She has sold them to other people at the campgrounds that she stays in. And if you are in that local area, she will sell one to you. By the way, the value of these things are anywhere from one to $2,000. So 50 percent off is actually a really good deal if you're looking for an e-bike. But that's an income stream that a lot of people don't think of when they think of YouTube content creators. Now, there was a second young lady that I began watching on YouTube. In fact, it was one of the oldest van life channels that I personally began watching. And it was a great channel. This uh, a young woman went from adventure to adventure to adventure. Every day she was camping in a new place. Often she was in a new state. She was meeting up with people. It just seemed like a never-ending van life adventure. It looked really fun. And it did dawn on me at some point that there had to be a way she was making money that I wasn't seeing in these videos. She did have a Patreon. She did have a, a way where people could send her money at the end of the videos. But I just didn't understand how she could be making enough money to sustain this lifestyle. And so at one point on her channel, she did a Q&A video where people could ask questions. And she said she would answer any question that people had. And one of the questions was, how much money are you making off of YouTube? And so she gave the answer. She said how much money she made from YouTube ads. She talked about how much money she made from some of her sponsorships. And then on the side, she mentioned that last year through an adult website, she made six figures. And that's the piece of the puzzle I was missing. I saw the videos, I saw the ads, but I didn't know that she was making another six figures through another source of income. And I am not uh, knocking that income. I'm not judging nothing about that. It doesn't, doesn't uh, it's none of my business where the money comes from. It's just that the money was never mentioned. And so that's a good reminder that a lot of the things you see on YouTube may not be an exact replication of what's happening in real life. Sometimes YouTubers leave out minor details <laughs> that make the full story difficult to put together. But the third YouTube channel that I want to mention was these two uh, young couple. They were newlyweds. They were older than 21. They were younger than 25. They were very, very young. And they started a YouTube channel. They bought a, a Ford E-150 cargo van and they converted it themselves. They put the videos on YouTube and through this process, they got monetized. They got enough viewers and subscribers that they were able to start making money off of YouTube. This money started coming in. And so they decided to take a big round trip around the country. I believe they started in Texas and they drove to Colorado and discovered that Colorado was cold. <laughs> also, Colorado was a difficult place for them to stealth camp in parking lots. They were getting a lot of window knocks and things like that. So I believe they drove to Montana. I'm not exactly sure, but they went to some BLM land. Uh, it was either too cold there or too hot there. I know they drove up to the Pacific Northwest. They had some encounters with locals. Uh, people ran them off of what they thought was some public lands. Uh, and this was all in their videos. And so they 
found themselves driving a lot more than they had originally planned on. And pretty soon they ran out of money. They weren't making as much money off of YouTube as they had planned. I think they thought maybe those numbers would increase, the views would increase and the income would increase and it really didn't. And by the end of their van life journey, they were asking people to please sign up for their Patreon so they could get some money to get gas to make it back home. They did eventually make it home safe and sound. Uh, and their last video was posted over a year ago. I think they might've retired their van for the time being. So, um, can you make a living from YouTube while living in your van? Well, yes, you can. Um, but there are some things you're going to have to do. Number one is you're going to have to make really good videos. Those videos are going to have to get monetized. You know, there are 3.7 million new videos every day being uploaded to YouTube. So it's a lot of content and you're going to have to work really hard to make those videos stand out. Um, number two, I would say you need to have some savings in the bank. YouTube, YouTube income is not consistent. Uh, it is based on how many people the previous month watched the ads in your video. So if something goes viral, you might make a lot of money the next month. If you are out of favor, you're not going to make any money. So you got to have a little bit of money in the bank to fall back on. And finally, I would say explore those alternative sources of income. You know, uh, don't just rely on YouTube by itself as a sole source of income. You can kind of use it as a platform for other things, for the sponsorships, for the merchandise, the things like that. Uh, it is a hustle and it is hard work, but there are definitely a lot of people living in vans that have managed to pull it off. Now, as someone who makes YouTube videos and creates podcasts, I I could tell you that it is all very expensive to do. You know, I have to register domains. Domains are uh, not super expensive, but when you have a few of them, they add up. Uh, cameras can be expensive and microphones and people that have drones, all those things are expensive. And the reality is that most creators are not millionaires. In fact, most of us are just happy to break even and pay for the, the cost of creating all this content. So if you find a show that you like, whether that's a YouTube channel or a podcast, show those people your support and they will greatly appreciate it. Which reminds me, you can support this show by buying Jeff a gallon of diesel. You could do that by going to buymeacoffee.com forward slash built to go. As Jeff would say, that is two T's, not three, not one. And that money goes to keep the ads away from this podcast and this YouTube video, which I greatly appreciate as a content consumer. So uh, there are links to that buy me a coffee website on the built to go.com website. There's also links there to the Facebook group and the Discord server. Both of those are good places to meet other fans of this show and discuss van life in general. You can also leave comments about this episode, I hope they're good, <laughs> on the YouTube video below, or you can email them directly to jeff at builttogo.com. Tech Talk. 
I recently purchased a power splitter for my van's 12 volt port in the dash. I'm going to refer to that as a cigarette lighter adapter, even though my van did not come with a cigarette lighter adapter, but I do tend to use those two terms interchangeably. Uh, this splitter that I found on Amazon for about $20 had some really nice features. It has a little LCD screen on the top that shows the current voltage coming into the device. It also has individual push buttons that will turn on and off all the different ports. And speaking of ports, this thing has a lot. It has two USB-C ports on the top that say they will provide 30 watts each. It also has two USB-A quick charge 3.0 ports that also claim to provide 30 watts. And then you get three cigarette lighter adapters across the front. So this is a lot of ports. This is what should allow me to charge everything that I have in my van. I have a, a, a knockoff Jackery battery that I refer to as my fakery battery. Um, you know, I'm always charging my phone. I'm always charging different things like that. And I thought, you know, this is great, but can I charge all these things at the same time? And the answer is no, <laughs> I cannot. Now this device, although it doesn't mention it on the box, if you look down in the details on Amazon, it says it is rated for 150 watts. And let me tell you, I am one of those people that's always getting watts and volts and amps confused. Uh, I forget which is which. None of the numbers don't uh, seem to make sense to me, but here is a very simple algebraic equation for you to remember. So write this down. Amps times volts equals watts. I'm going to say it again. Amps times volts equals watts. So um, this device has a replaceable on the bottom 15 amp fuse. So the maximum we know this thing can handle is 15 amps. Now, in addition, we know that a cigarette lighter adapter is a 12 volt adapter. We can even see on the top of the unit when I plug it in, it says 12.1 volts. So if we use this little formula, amps times volts, that's 15 times 12, that would be 180 watts. Now, this device says 150 watts maximum. So uh, it's definitely has internal uh, limitations, limiting it to 150 watts. So again, let's talk about all those ports that were on there. There's two USB-C-A ports that are 30 watts each. That's 60. There are two USB-C charging ports that are rated for 30 watts. That's another 60. So we're already at 120 watts. And then it says the 150 watts are split between the three cigarette lighter adapters on the front. So even if nothing else were plugged in, those would only be outputting 50 watts each. Now I do actually have two different camping batteries uh, and I was able to prove this pretty easily. I took one of the batteries, I plugged it directly into my dash. It shows me the incoming watts. It was like 97 watts. And then I took it and plugged it into the splitter while another one was plugged in and it dropped to about 45. And so that's really the takeaway of this is that when you see things that say they're a power splitter, 
they are a power splitter. <laughs> it's not like an amplifier. It's not taking the incoming uh, voltage and multiplying it somehow. You have a set amount of volts that you get, and as you plug different things in, uh, that number is divided out. So it's not a magic device. You can't plug things into all seven ports and charge them all at once. You're going to need to uh, decide. <laughs> Usually my phone is the most important, but you need to decide what you need to charge and when. Product review. In my house, we order a lot of things from Amazon. There are always Amazon packages on the front porch and in the entryway. There was a day recently where there was a large amount of packages and I accidentally opened an Amazon package that was addressed to my wife. And when I opened it up, my first thought was, this must be an early Christmas gift for me because the name of the company on the box inside the Amazon box was something from a company called Van True. And so if you're going to buy me something for Christmas, getting it from a company called Van True is probably a pretty good sign it's for me. But it wasn't for me. She actually purchased this for herself. Now, Van True is one of the leading companies that makes dash cams. And the one that she ordered for herself is a Van True in two model. Now this is a older model. There's a N2 Pro, N2, uh, N3, N4. I think there's an N5. So there are many different models. This is a, a cheaper model and an older model. It has two cameras on the device. There is a front facing, and by that I mean it points out through your windshield, and then there is a rear facing. That camera points back and records what's happening inside your car. Both of those cameras record video at 1080p quality. This device sells right now because it's an older model sells for, we got it for a little under a hundred dollars. I think the more expensive ones are somewhere over two, but less than $300. So that's roughly the range that you're looking at. Uh, so my thoughts when I saw this were, there are three things this can do. Number one, if I had this in my van, I could record the footage outside my van as I'm driving, especially if I were making YouTube type videos and I wanted to put in a driving montage, I would already have that footage available to me, right? You could just get the footage off of the security cam. But if you're in an accident or something happens, uh, you would already have that footage as well. Uh, number two, you can obviously, uh, because it has two cameras, you're going to be recording yourself as well. So as you're driving, you get this footage of yourself. Uh, that's, again, footage that you could use for something else. This is a very popular device for Uber drivers in case something happens in their car. If they get accosted by a passenger or something goes terribly wrong, they also have security footage uh, that is being recorded all the time. But my third thought was this could be used as a security camera. If someone comes up and bumps your car or something like that in a parking lot, it has a setting where it will start recording based off of motion sensitivity. So if someone approaches your van, it will start recording. But there's a catch to that, which I'll talk about. Uh, this is a very portable device. It mounts to your windshield with a suction cup. It is uh, rectangular, so it's very wide and skinny. It almost looks like a, a webcam. It uses a 
SD card, actually a SD or a micro SD card to record the videos on. It is limited to 256 gigabyte micro SD card, which is actually quite a bit. It breaks the videos down into one, three or five minute links. Uh, there's also a button on the back of the camera that says P, which I believe is for preserve. So if you're driving and you see something and you wanna save that video, if you press P, it will move that video into a separate folder to make sure that it doesn't get erased. Now, if you don't preserve that video, what happens is if you leave it in the default setting, the camera will just continually re-record over itself. So it will be constantly deleting the oldest videos on the card and recording new videos over the top of that. So the card doesn't actually ever fill up per se. It is constantly cycling through those videos. Uh, also, it has a crash detection uh, module built in. So if you're in an accident, it automatically moves those videos to that preserved folder as well. Uh, the cameras have a little bit of a fisheye lens uh, look to them, but it's not bad. It's mostly, of course, like a normal fisheye lens. It's As the video gets closer to the edges, you can see a little bit of warping. But uh, for anybody that would be sitting in the front two seats, the video looks just fine. The same thing about the road out in front of you. Now, one of the problems with this device, and I think some of the newer and more expensive ones may have fixed this, but the model that my wife purchased has no Wi-Fi capabilities and no Bluetooth capabilities. So to get the video off the camera, you have two options. One is you can remove the micro SD card from the camera and take it inside your house and copy the video files off. Or there is a USB-C connection on the camera, which means you could take your laptop out to your car or take the camera inside the house, and, but connect those with a USB-C camera and, or a cable and you would be able to uh, copy those, those files off as well. Um, the model that we have also does not have a battery, which means it requires constant power. So when my wife starts her car, it gets power from the cigarette lighter adapter, which is where it plugs into, and the camera comes on. When she turns her car off, the camera turns off. Now, if you have a 12-volt accessory port that is always powered, then you can leave the camera powered at all times. Now, you might be thinking, maybe I could just wire that into the fuse block or the battery or something like that, and you can. In fact, Vantru sells a direct wiring kit for an additional $25. The one thing about this kit uh, that you get that you wouldn't get from doing this yourself is the self-wiring kit or permanent wiring kit as it's called has a low voltage detector and so it will turn the camera off if it determines that your battery is getting low. So it won't drain your starter battery all the way down. It may drain it to a certain percent, but when it detects that the battery is getting low, it will turn itself off. So that's the problem with the motion sensor that it needs power. So if you have this plugged into a cigarette lighter adapter and your car is off and it doesn't have power, it's not going to record any of those security events that you might be hoping for. 
Uh, I thought the microphone was so-so. It does pick up the sound, but it is not podcast quality or video YouTube quality. So if I were going to use it for um, a podcast or for a YouTube video, something like that, I would probably have an external microphone or something else that I would grab the audio from. If you want video protection while you're driving from an accident or something like that, then I don't think it's bad. Um, my biggest problem with security is that it's very obvious that there is a security camera on the dash of your windshield, and the only thing holding it there is a suction cup. So if someone's going to break into my car uh, and take things, if I were a bad guy, the first thing I would take would be the security camera. <laughs> if I were gonna have this in my car and use it for a security backup system or for something that I use on a day-to-day -day basis, I would probably spend a little more and look at some of the higher models from Vantrue. And the one thing I would say is if you're gonna buy it off of Amazon or somewhere else, look at all the details, everything that's included, and don't assume that it does anything that's not listed there. I would totally assume, uh, because it mentions that there is an app that can be used with Vantrue products, so I just assume that this app would allow you to copy the videos over, and it doesn't, so. Uh, yeah, if I were, like I said, if I were going to use this uh, for a permanent thing in my van, especially for a security model, that's what I would do is I would upgrade to a slightly expensive thing. And by the way, I asked my wife, why did you buy a security camera? And then she confessed to me, because I sing so many silly songs and come up with pretend jingles in the car. She was hoping to record those and create an Instagram account that I didn't know about. Tales from the road. With all due respect, <laughs> that was my Jeff Wag impersonation. I was born in the early 1970s, but I am a child of the 80s. I grew up in the 1980s, and I love uh, all things 80s. And I think everyone who grew up in the 80s, if they weren't a fan, were at least exposed to the music of Weird Al Yankovic. Now, Weird Al put out many albums in my childhood. And in 1989, he released the soundtrack for his movie, UHF. And on that album, there is a song called The Biggest Ball of Twine in Minnesota. Now, my wife and I have gone on many, many road trips. In fact, uh, we have driven to all 48 states. We wanted to do that while our children were young, and we accomplished that before they were old enough to drive themselves. And we listened to a lot of music in the car, and because it's kid-friendly, we have listened to a lot of Weird Al over the years while driving around the country. And so one day we were on our way back. I believe we were coming from uh, North Dakota. We were coming straight south to Oklahoma City. I was in the passenger seat, lightly dozing, and my wife was driving and she slammed on the brakes in the middle of nowhere, Kansas, and yelled. I honestly thought we had just either avoided or had been in an accident. I sat up and I said, what is it? And she pointed to the biggest ball of twine in Kansas. Now, it turns out, if you don't know, there are many 
biggest balls of twine. And the biggest ball of twine in Minnesota that Weird Al song is about is just one of many biggest balls of twine in the United States. The one that's in Weird Al's song is in Darwin, Minnesota. It is 17,400 pounds and was rolled by Francis A. Johnson over a period of 29 years. Now, the thing is, one thing that I didn't understand about that song title at the time was that it's the biggest ball of twine in Minnesota. That doesn't mean the biggest ball of twine in the world is in Minnesota. It just means that that particular ball of twine in Minnesota is their biggest one. <laughs> so, when you get into the Guinness Book of World Records, you have to be very specific. And the ball of twine in Minnesota is the largest ball of twine rolled by a single person. However, the ball of twine that we came across in Kansas, this is in Cocker City, Kansas, uh, took the world record or the Guinness record, I will say in 2014, it is 41.42 feet in diameter. It is 10 and 10.83 feet in height. It weighs an estimated 19,973 pounds. It consists of 1.6 million feet of twine. It is the biggest ball of twine in the country that was made by a town. So it was not made by a single person, the people of Cocker City, Kansas. And in fact, to this day, get together one day a year in August and everyone shows up and wraps more twine. In fact, it's called the Twinathon. <laughs> and members of the town show up and add twine to the ball. So that one is listed as the biggest ball of twine. And then in parentheses, it says built by a community. Now, you would think, oh, there must be this contention between these two largest balls of twine, but it turns out there are more because there is one located in Lake Nabagaman in Wisconsin. It is not a biggest ball of twine. It is the heaviest ball of twine. It was made by James Frank Cotera, who goes by the initials JFK. James started rolling his ball of twine in 1979 and worked on it until his death in 2023. It is not as wide as the other balls of twine. In fact, it's not exactly spherical. It's a little bit more cylindrical in shape, but it does weigh 24,000 160 pounds. That is 12 tons plus. <laughs> and so it is not the biggest ball of twine, but it is the heaviest ball of twine. And that is located again in Wisconsin. Now, all of these balls of twine are vying for the record of biggest ball of twine, but Branson, Missouri has their own ball of twine. And this one has an asterisk that says nylon, <laughs> and it is located in the Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum in Branson, Missouri. It is 41.5 feet in circumference, and it is the world's largest, but also the lightest of all the other balls of twine. And it was made by J.C. Payne, who started his ball because he was taking the twine from hay bales that was in his way, and he wrapped those up. Uh, but when he found out there was a record, 
it seems that he made some sort of mechanical device to help him uh, grow his ball of twine. So we have the biggest ball of twine made by a single person. We have the biggest ball of twine made by a community. And this is the one that has been made by a machine. Uh, now, we also know he used a machine to help him because he made his biggest ball of twine in only five years, where it took some of these other people 30 plus years to make theirs. Um, once he made the ball, he immediately sold it to the Ripley's Museum in Branson, Missouri, and went off to start the world's biggest ball of barbed wire. But that will be a tale for another episode. A place to visit. Now, as I mentioned, my wife and I are fans of road trips, and we are located right here just outside of Oklahoma City. When my kids were young, we set a goal of visiting all 50 states before they were old enough to drive. Uh, we did accomplish that. We drove to 48 states, and we took cruises to Alaska and Hawaii just before my son was old enough to drive. So I have literally driven to all, I've driven in all 50 states, I've driven to 48 states, and I have stories about things I have seen in every single state. And so I am cheating just a little bit by telling you about a place that is 20 miles away from my own home. Now, the town that I live in, which is just outside of Oklahoma City, Main Street in our town has another name, and that name is Route 66. And about 20 miles east of Oklahoma City is another small town called El Reno. And Route 66 runs right through El Reno as well. So if you are on I-40 traveling across the country, you can find uh, El Reno about 20 miles east of Oklahoma City. Or if you're on Route 66, you will find it there as well. Uh, El Reno has a population of about 17,000 people. It was named for Fort Reno which was established in the late 1800s. Fort Reno was abandoned right around the time that Oklahoma became a state in 1907. It was later used to house World War II prisoners of war. Uh, but there are many things to see and do in El Reno, and I want to tell you just a couple of those things. First of all, there are several tours that you can attend. You can go through Fort Reno, and if you're a history buff, you'll appreciate all the things, uh, the history of Fort Reno and how it was originally set up and what it has been used for. And if you go a certain times a year, it is, uh, they also have haunted tours of Fort Reno, which if that's your thing, they're kind of fun to go through. Uh, there's also an old railroad depot. There used to be railroad cars that ran right along Route 66. The railroad depot has since been shut down. There are railroad cars there that you can climb around on and tour through, and that's all part of the downtown El Reno Museum. El Reno is also the home of the Onion Burger. Now, the Onion Burger was invented during the Dust Bowl right around the time of the Great Depression. And as the story goes, uh, cattle and livestock became hard to come by because uh, there wasn't water. And so as meat and other things uh, became scarce, 
there was a entrepreneur hamburger maker who came up with the idea of cutting the meat in a hamburger patty in half and adding onions to the meat. Uh, and these are grilled onions, so they're added directly to the meat and they make the meat patty much larger than they would have been because they just didn't have the meat at that time. Uh, if you look up any of those man versus food or the diners, drive-ins, those type of shows, they have all been to El Reno, Oklahoma, and they have all featured the onion burger restaurants that are there. There's Sid's Diner, there's Robert's Grill, and there's Johnny's Onion Burgers. They are all located within about 100 yards of each other. So this was the birthplace of the onion burger, and if you want an authentic onion burger, El Reno, Oklahoma is the place to have it. If if you happen to be in El Reno, Oklahoma during April, you might be able to attend the Onion Burger Festival, which we go to every year. There's a car show, there's a carnival, and they cook the world's largest onion burger. They take over a downtown intersection, they set up a giant grill, and they cook an 850-pound meat patty. <laughs> And if you get in line, you can have a free sample of the onion burger. So that is onion burger uh, day that happens every day in El Reno. But the last thing I want to tell you about El Reno is not actually in El Reno. It's about 10 minutes north. I think the mailing address is technically El Reno, but this area is just outside of the city limits and it is called Concho. Concho is an unincorporated part of land. It is owned by the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes. Uh, there's not much to see or do in Concho except for one thing, Lucky Star Casino. Now, Lucky Star Casino is a traditional uh, casino. It's one of those that's on Indian land, so the rules are slightly different. Uh, they have like 1,200 slot machines. They have all the traditional stuff you would expect. They have a restaurant inside the casino, and they also have a brewery. But there are two special reasons why you might want to uh, visit Concho and Lucky Star Casino. The first is uh, that the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes maintain their own herd of buffalo. I know that technically, if they're in North America, they're bison. They're not buffalo, but they call them buffalo there. Uh, but there is a herd of around 200 buffalo, and they are right next to the casino. There's a little road you can drive down, and uh, you can pull over on the side of the road. And if you've ever been up close, like within five feet of a bison, they are very large and massive animals. And you could stand right on the other side. You could stand uncomfortably close to one on the other side of a barbed wire fence. Sometimes you'll drive down the road and see one or two. I have driven down there in the morning and seen all 200. And it is an amazing sight to see. But the other reason I'm telling you about Lucky Star Casino is that they have free parking. They have free RV parking. There is an uh, extended parking lot where you can park, but not only that, up near the casino are 10 parking spaces that again are completely free with free water, free sewer, and free electricity. They have the camping poles with 30 amp and 50 amp uh, plugs. You can go to the casino and the only thing that they ask that you do is get a player's card, which is completely free. And as free as those spots are, 
we all know there's not a lot to do <laughs> outside of Lucky Star Casino except go inside Lucky Star Casino. So it is a free spot that might end up costing you if you like slot machines as much as I do. Folks, thank you very much for watching or listening to episode 188. Jeff will be returning on the next episode, so if I screwed things up too badly, please don't unsubscribe to the show. Uh, all the music you hear on this show is from Simon Wagg. Thanks again for hanging out with me. Whenever I do a guest appearance, I always like to quote Principal McGee from the movie Grease, who said, if you can't be an athlete, be an athletic supporter. Safe travels to you all, and we'll see you here on the next episode of Built to Go.